Our sermon this morning is entitled Marriage and Moral Certainty. And our primary text this morning will be from Genesis chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 18 through 25, and we will also look briefly at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. Our key words for our worshipers in training are marriage, man, and woman. Now this morning is a very rare occasion in the normal weekly ministry of the Word here at Ephesus Church. If you're visiting with us, our normal practice is that we preach through uh, the Bible verse by verse, expositions of books of the Bible. Between books, we'll sometimes uh, spend a few weeks looking at a topical series, but then we continue to do that verse by verse uh, through the Scriptures. Additionally, it's, it's very rare that we would break from an ongoing exposition on any given Lord's Day, and even more rare that we would ever do so in response to a cultural issue. However, in fact, I think, now that I think about it, in five and a half years of being here, this is the first time we've ever done so. However, on Wednesday of this past week, The United States Supreme Court handed down two decisions that have moral implications for the church and our culture that are so incredibly profound that the elders decided it was important enough for us to address. In the history of the United States, there are very few issues that have ever reached the level of significance that the court's decisions have reached this week. But prior to addressing the specifics of the moral issues of the Supreme Court's decisions, I want to make a few comments regarding the relationship between the church and the state. Now, as a pastor, I never preach politics from the pulpit. I have strong political opinions. I have great political interests. But standing here is not the place for those to be expressed. We gather on the Lord's Day to hear from the Word of God, to be instructed on what God has commanded and how God has worked and is working throughout the history of the world and to proclaim the gospel of free, sovereign grace that men, women, and children might be saved and set free from the bondage of sin and death. And that being said, I want to assert that while the issue we are looking at has been highly politicized and has entered state and federal congresses as well as many different court systems and is now having, now having passed through the highest court of this land at heart, this is not ultimately a political issue but rather a moral issue. And to classify it as a political issue simply because it's been brought into the realm of politics would be the equivalent of calling murder a political issue because something like abortion has been politicized. So don't assuming that what I am saying today is any kind of endorsement or condemnation of any political party or politician or form of government. We are dealing with worldviews. We're dealing with the consequences of ideas, not political agendas. So the goal this morning is not for us to rally behind politicians or legislative initiatives, but to point us to the truth of God's word. We are citizens of two kingdoms, namely the kingdom of God, if we are Christians, and the kingdom of the United States of America. 
So we have to know how, as citizens of the kingdom of God, to rightly respond to the moral uncertainty of this age in this kingdom in which we live, according to what God has said in the scriptures. So what is the issue that we will be addressing? This past Wednesday, on the last day of its term, the United States Supreme Court ruled on two different cases regarding the legality of same-sex marriage. In the first decision, the court found in a split 5-4 decision that the Defense of Marriage Act, passed overwhelmingly by Congress and signed into law in 1996, they found to be unconstitutional. Specifically, the court found that the government's refusal to recognize same-sex marriage that is legal in any state to be unconstitutional. However, the court did decide that no individual state must recognize the so-called same-sex marriage that was granted in another state. The other decision was related to Proposition 8 in California. In 2008, the majority of voters in California passed a constitutional amendment to their state constitution that defined marriage in that state as a union between a man and a woman, effectively overturning a California Supreme Court ruling that had previously legalized same-sex marriage. The United States Supreme Court ruling on Wednesday upheld the findings of the California Supreme Court, thus striking down Proposition 8 and allowing same-sex marriage to legally stand in the state of California. And as of Friday afternoon, the state said that same-sex marriages can resume immediately, joining 12 other states in doing so. Now, while each of these two cases is very significant, the most significant for us to consider is the court's ruling on the Defense of Marriage Act. Congress passed this law in 1996, and Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote the court's majority opinion on the case this past week, and he stated that in passing the Defense of Marriage Act, Congress was motivated by a specific moral animus against homosexual marriage and homosexual citizens. In other words, the majority of the justices are arguing that the Defense of Marriage Act passed by Congress was based on the hatred of homosexual citizens, therefore making it to be unconstitutional. I quote from the court's decision, quote, the avowed purpose and practical effect of the law here in question are to impose a disadvantage, a separate status, and so a stigma upon all who enter into same-sex marriages made lawful by the unquestioned authority of the states, end quote. They went on to say in doing so that Congress had passed a law that, quote, violates the due process of equal protection principles applicable to the federal government. So while the immediate effects of the court's decisions regarding the federal government are not specifically clear as of yet. It does mean at a minimum that the federal government will now be required to recognize any and all same-sex unions declared to be legal in any state, thereby extending full recognition 
and all federal marriage benefits to a same-sex couple. In other words, any homosexual couple who is recognized by a state to be legally married is eligible for joint federal benefits when one or both individuals are or will receive federal pay, insurance, retirement, and on and on and on. Now, of course, the logical outcome of the Supreme Court's decision is that eventually, and perhaps even within the next year, homosexual marriage will no longer be an issue decided by the states, but it will rather be mandated by the federal government. In the words of the dissenting Justice Scalia, quote, as far as this court is concerned, no one should be fooled. It is just a matter of listening and waiting for the other shoe to drop, end quote. In other words, in short order, a homosexual couple in a state like Georgia that does not recognize same-sex marriage will bring the issue before the courts. And at the federal level, it will be decided whether or not it is unconstitutional for any state to not provide marriage licensure and allowing same-sex marriage. And given the decision handed down on Wednesday, there really can be no question as to whether the result of this challenge will end up in the same way as these other decisions have. Very few legal scholars on either side of this issue disagree. Sooner or later, and probably sooner than later, homosexual marriage will not be the law of 12 states. It will be the law of the nation. Perhaps now you understand why this is such an important issue for us to address. So where do we go from here? Well, there's a tremendous amount I could and would like to say about it this morning, but I want to narrow our focus in three primary ways. First, we have to consider the Bible's teaching about marriage what it is, what it cannot be, and what it never has been. Secondly, we need to consider the moral certainty that we have regarding God's word about the sinfulness of homosexuality. And third, we need to think hard about the implications of this on the church and how we respond to it in our culture, and specifically responding to homosexuals that we know and love with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to have very strong biblical convictions, but we need to express them with biblical compassion. And how we respond can be as significant as the court's response itself. So please join me in Genesis chapter 2. We will begin in verse 18. As we look at the institution of marriage itself, what is it? Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. 
and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So in the Bible, we see that right here in the Garden of Eden, God himself officiates the very first wedding. When Adam sees Eve for the first time, he breaks into poetic rejoicing and says, At last. Everything in this text proclaims to us that marriage next to our relationship with God is the most profound and important relationship that we will have on this earth. Christians have always understood marriage to be given by God as we see right here in Genesis. It is as sure as the creation of the universe itself as is evidenced by the fact that it was established in the garden prior to the fall of mankind. In other words, marriage predates all corruption and sin and is the first official human union and institution. And it was established by God himself. And given the narrative that we have in the scriptures regarding marriage here in Genesis 2, there are numerous conclusions that we can draw as to what marriage is and why we enter into it. For our purposes this morning, I want to focus on one aspect of this, namely, who marriage is between. Our Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, agrees with the Westminster Confession of Faith on this point, stating thus, Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. So what do we see in the text? We see a man leaving his father and mother, holding fast to his wife, and the two becoming one flesh, which is the full consummation of marriage in a sexual union of the man and the woman. Furthermore, in Genesis 1.27, we read, And God created the man, or the Adam, in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's very interesting language. And many have suggested, and I concur from this, that the fullness of God's image in human beings comes together in the union, the one flesh union of male and female and consummated in the first uh, sexual union of those two individuals. And God goes on to indicate one of the specific purposes of marriage that we see in verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, there are some very obvious implications here regarding the very definition of what marriage is because of what it is intended for. 
God has mandated that men and women be fruitful and multiply and that marriage is only fully rightly consummated in the taking on of one flesh, which is undeniably through a sexual union between a man and a woman. Furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul unwraps what he calls the profound mystery of marriage. And he says that it is about Christ and the church. God created marriage with a specific purpose in mind. Our confession of faith says, quote, Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of the husband and wife, for the increase of mankind and for preventing uncleanliness, which is referring to sexual immorality. Furthermore, the Bible is a bridal book, and the Apostle Paul helps us to see God's intention through Christian marriage is to show forth to the world the relationship that is shared between Christ and His bride, the church. We, as the people of God, are the bride of Christ, who is himself the bridegroom. And the language of the Bible undeniably assigns male and female designations to that relationship, again, helping us to understand God's design for marriage. So we can say with certainty that the Christian church does not ask the Supreme Court of the United States or any other human court or institution what marriage is. Marriage is a pre-political institution designed and established by our Creator for the mutual companionship of a husband and a wife, for human flourishing and for the glory of God. And if that's the case, which we have seen in the Scriptures Marriage cannot be between anyone other than one man and one woman. In other words, the implication here is to say that not only that same-sex marriage shouldn't exist, but that it doesn't exist and it cannot exist. In other words, the world can call anything whatever it wants to call it. But those who believe that God has spoken clearly and truthfully in the Bible should not conclude that any relationship other than one man and one woman be called or even be considered marriage. God has created, God has defined what marriage is, and what he has joined together in that creation and definition cannot be separated and it cannot be altered and still be called marriage in the eyes of God. Furthermore, until now, as far as can be historically discerned, no society in the history of the world has ever defined marriage as being between people of the same sex. Now, it is extremely rare, indeed almost unheard of, that issues arise in our modern generation that the church has not had to deal with in the past. But this is one of those rare occasions. And while homosexuality is by no means a new issue for Christians to tackle, the issue of the so-called marriage of those individuals simply has no historical precedence to guide us, except the knowledge that unrighteousness destroys nations and the celebration of unrighteousness hastens the nation's demise. Now, the writer of Hebrews gives a stark warning 
in this regard. He writes, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Brothers and sisters, what's clear is that marriage is not being held in honor among all. And as a nation, it is now built into the law of the land to move toward the celebration all the more of acts of sexual immorality and the defilement of the marriage bed. And when an entire nation is given over to the dishonoring of marriage and the marriage bed through homosexual acts, the demise of the nation is imminent lest there is repentance. The glory of God and the flourishing of His image on the earth are at the heart of the issue. So, given these absolute claims of Scripture describing what marriage is, what is clearly not, or never has been, or can be, we as Christians can have moral certainty with regard to marriage and homosexuality. God's Word has clearly identified the sinfulness of homosexuality. Through numerous explicit prohibitions in the Scriptures, we see things like the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah because of their homosexual acts, and the description of homosexuality by the Apostle Paul as unnatural desires or vile passions. We see that God's Word has clearly called homosexuality an abomination in His eyes. That being said, there are several issues we have to consider in light of the clear biblical teaching. On some level, every human being to have ever lived is guilty of sexual sin, be it lust, adultery, fornication, causing others to stumble. Not one of us here this morning can claim absolute moral purity with regard to sexuality. We must then make certain that we not understand homosexuality to be the unpardonable sin. Homosexuals, like all of us, can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. But perhaps out of revulsion or simply having no way to think clearly about homosexuality, the church has often uh, failed to speak the truth or apply God's remedial mercy to those trapped in a homosexual lifestyle. The tendency has either been to ignore it altogether and pretend like it's not sinful or to come down so hard on it that it seems to be the only sin of concern. But we have to remain faithful to the teaching of God's Word. We cannot condone what God condemns. However, the fact that homosexuality is a sin means just that, that it's a sin. Nothing more, nothing less. It is not some mystical force within a person, some genetic or psychological programming that cannot be overcome. It is a transgression of God's law a form of self-love that expresses itself in a particularly heinous attack on the image of God. And so we might ask, and the culture is asking, has been for years, are people born as homosexuals? 
Is there a biological argument to be made for a person being genetically inclined toward homosexuality? In all honesty, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. As is the case with literally millions of other issues, one's natural inclination as a human being is always towards sinful acts. And homosexuality is no different. In other words, heterosexual men are naturally prone to lust after women and in doing so are breaking the law of God and committing an act of sexual immorality. So as Christians, as the church, we have to stand on the absolute reality that our homosexual nature, uh, uh, friends, uh, neighbors are all like us apart from Christ. Namely, seeking a way that seems best to them. So while homosexual sin is treated very seriously in the scriptures, they are not all that different from our temptation that is common to every human experience in a fallen world. Homosexuality does not define a person, nor is same-sex attraction a hopeless plight. It's very real for some people, and we need to deal with it as a very real temptation. Brothers and sisters, we have to avoid the idea that homosexual sin is greater than all others, along with the presumption that those experiencing same-sex desires necessarily choose to feel that way and only refuse to change themselves. Let's be honest. How effective were you and I at changing ourselves prior to our salvation in Jesus Christ? We didn't. We couldn't. It's an impossibility because we are locked into the sinful passions of our hearts before our hearts are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Now, your sinful passions may have looked very different than the sinful passions of others, but the end result is very much the same. So you see, same-sex attraction is just one of many different burdens carried by those who are created in God's image and in need of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. So here's what we must do. We will continue to say what the world, by and large, will not believe at all. Namely, that it is possible to describe homosexual behavior as sinful, perverse, abnormal, and destructive to persons and the culture at large, while simultaneously being willing to lay down our lives for the homosexual person. In fact, we take it a step further and say something even more radical that the unbelieving world cannot understand and will not believe that you must believe that homosexual behavior is a sin and harmful in order that you are able to love a homosexual person rightly. You see, we will be called hateful, we will be called bigots, we will be called homophobic, you name it. But God tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So if you deny the truth that homosexuality is sin, but instead approve of it or rejoice in it with the world, what you bring to the homosexual person is not love. 
no matter how affirming, no matter how kind, no matter how tolerant. Now, when we address the reality of the sin, don't assume that it will be received as love. But sinful men and women do not get the privilege of defining what love is. God does. And condoning that which God forbids is not loving. So what shall we say? Where do we as the church go from here? Well, we must affirm with absolute certainty the glorious truth of God's word in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, and the hope that is offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, identifies the specifics of the people, the Corinthians' sinful pasts. He writes this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice here, homosexual sin is listed right along with all the others. And likewise is a grievous human temptation. However, what is significant in this passage is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He begins by saying, those who practice homosexuality and any other kind of sexual morality and all of these other things he listed will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you are justified in Jesus Christ, that is your former life. That is who you were. That is no longer who you are. Such were some of you. In other words, all of these sins describe the former identities of the Corinthian believers, but they were delivered by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures give us tremendous hope in the face of all kinds of deep-seated passions. We must affirm that the fact is that there is hope for the person with a homosexual orientation and that Jesus Christ offers a healing whole alternative in which the power of that sin is broken and that person is freed to know and experience his true and real identity in Jesus Christ and in the fellowship of his church. As Christians, we know that part of the creation that was subjected to death and futility was our very own bodies. Paul writes this very thing in Romans 8 when he says, we wait eagerly as adoption for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies, our bodies must be redeemed. And so, friend, even if you're not engaged in homosexual sin or do not struggle with same-sex attraction, apart from Christ, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, but you will be condemned eternally to hell. However, Jesus Christ has lived a perfect, law-fulfilling life according to God's law. 
He died the death deserved by sinners in place of those who would repent and believe on him and was raised from the dead to sit at the right hand of the Father to reign and rule for eternity. And in this work of Christ, there is a great offer of reconciliation and forgiveness to all who repent and believe. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I don't care what your sexual orientation is, quite honestly, if you do not trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to provide you with the righteousness you need to stand before a holy God, you have no hope. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you are not ultimately accountable to whether or not you did or didn't do what the Supreme Court said was acceptable. You're accountable to the king whose name is Jesus. Friend, sinner, acknowledge your sinful nature and rebellion against God and repent of your sin and believe on Jesus Christ. The question is, will you trust him? Only Jesus can make you whole. And no other pursuit in this life, seeking for that which brings fulfillment and satisfaction, will do. Now, I have eight implications of the Supreme Court ruling and how they affect us and how we are to respond as the church of Jesus Christ. Number one, as I said at the onset of this morning's sermon, and as is the prediction of Justice Scalia, it is only a matter of short time that the next shoe will drop and so-called same-sex marriage will be the federal law of the land. As a result, we will see more brokenness in the lives of our neighbors, not less. What once carried with it a sense of shame is now openly celebrated and even encouraged. So it will be a more attractive pursuit in the eyes of those who are seeking their own way. And it will lead to the same destructive end as every other sin. Those who pursue a homosexual lifestyle with more fervor now than ever before because it is becoming more accepted will not find the help and the hope they're assuming that there would in being out of the closet. They will only find greater despair. They will only find more brokenness. And the church has a responsibility in the midst of that. Once again, to proclaim and declare that hope is found in Jesus Christ, who breaks the bondage of sin and death. Second, children need to know what we're talking about this morning. And it's time that all of us parents have very important conversations with our kids. Obviously, the issue and the depth with which we discuss it is age-dependent, but it will not be long before our children encounter two men or two women who claim to be married and may even consider themselves to be the parents of children in our very own neighborhoods. No matter how much you protect your children from the sinful reality of the world, It's not realistic and it's not particularly Christian to leave them in the dark regarding something like this that will be very obvious in very short order. That doesn't mean we provide our children with all of the graphic information that they aren't ready to process. But we must affirm with them that Jesus calls us to live as husbands and wives with fidelity and permanence and to do so in a complementarian manner. 
in the same way that we've probably all had to deal already in discussing things like divorce and cohabitation and out-of-wedlock pregnancies with our children, this will now be another issue that needs to be dealt with honestly and clearly according to God's word. We cannot ignore our children in all of this. Third, we must not ridicule or express hostility towards those who disagree with us on this matter. Some of you, I know, have homosexual family members. Be sure to continue to express your love for them. Even though you disagree with them regarding God's design for marriage and human sexuality. Regardless of what homosexuals and their advocates believe, as Christians, we can and we must continue to affirm the absolute truthfulness and unbendingness of what God has commanded, while simultaneously loving and praying for them and even telling them it is sin. And that will not seem like love to them, but it is the only way that we can rightly love them. Fourth, polygamy, polyamory, incest, and pedophilia are next in terms of ideological and eventually legal acceptance. While the majority of the country now favorably supports and celebrates homosexual practice, the express conclusion is that sexual morality is defined by one's inclinations and desires, not by an absolute timeless truth. So men who desire more than one wife or a man and a woman who want to join into a partnership with other men and women having multiple people in a legalized relationship, sons who want to marry their mothers and fathers, their daughters, or men and women who desire to engage in egregious sexual sin with minors, all of this is the inevitable end to this issue. And if you think that's far-fetched or far-off, know that there are already organizations working toward this end in every one of these issues I've named. There's groups like the North American Man-Boy Love Association, known as NAMBLA. They openly state in their mission statement this, I quote, As never before, our society is beginning to recognize the value and richness of human diversity. We support the rights of youth as well as adults to choose their partners with whom they wish to share and enjoy their bodies. Their desire is to openly legalize, support, and encourage pedophilia. And many other such organizations have very strong political lobbies and are working hard to normalize their sinful activity and desires. And very much like homosexuality was never previously considered to be something that would be accepted and celebrated, not too long later it is and is the law of the land. We must assume, we must recognize that all others will follow because the moral foundation has been corroded. Fifth, the Christian church must reaffirm the sacredness and seriousness of marriage. And every one of us must value it even higher than we currently do. Issues like adultery and divorce have become so normal in our culture that they are spoken of and pursued with very little consideration whatsoever. Brothers and sisters, our marriages mean a great deal to God. 
They mean a great deal to our children. They mean a great deal to the church and to our culture. Marriage has existed from the very beginning. And it is resilient regardless of what any culture does to minimize or redefine it. However, if the church does not value marriage to the point of refusing to accept the cultural norms of adultery and divorce, our voice will be muddled and our words will be confusing as we talk about the sinfulness of the cultural practices while turning a blind eye to what we have come to see as very normal. Adultery, fornication, divorce should not be normal in the Christian church. They're not unforgivable sins, but they are not sins to be pursued by the people of God. And if we continue to do so as the church in the United States, our voice regarding the sinfulness of homosexuality will not be heard. Because we have proven ourselves that we too do not value the institution of marriage. Sixth, another inevitability of these issues has already taken place in the public arena, but has not yet yet reached the level of legality. And that is this. To hold a consistent biblical position regarding the sinfulness of homosexuality and all other sexual perversions is considered hateful and intolerant and will eventually be considered a hate crime. Should the Lord tarry and keep me preaching for another 30 or 40 years, I fully expect to be faced with the reality of physical persecution along with all other gospel ministers who preach the word of God regarding marriage and homosexuality. The reality is that what is currently protected by the First Amendment of our Constitution and the freedom of speech will eventually be called crimes of hatred and we will be accused of inciting hatred and intolerance and violence. Therefore, we will find ourselves before the courts and in the jails. It is inevitable. It is already happening in other countries. Seventh, while it is absolutely 100% inevitable that real persecution is before us, the history of the Christian church, we see throughout the history that it is extremely rare that we have been able to enjoy what we have enjoyed for so long as Christians in our nation. The fact that we've been free from persecution for so long is not the history of the church. By no means whatsoever will we be able to say that we are alone in enduring the scorn of sinful man and his institutions. And do you know what happens in the time of greatest persecution in the church? The gospel flourishes in amazing and unique ways. Without fail, the places of the world where the church is most intensely persecuted the church also grows in ways previously unknown. So you see, brothers and sisters, we need not fear flesh and blood. We've been learning that in the Gospel of Luke lately. We need not to fear man, but we must boldly acknowledge Christ and rejoice that He has redeemed us and He has told us what is good. The most that any man can do is kill us. 
And in doing so, our blood will fertilize the ground for solid gospel flourishing. In the meantime, if we're going to reach the world, including those who believe in same-sex marriage, we must learn to love them. All of them. And the answer is not ranting and raving on Facebook or losing our temper on Twitter or raging to our neighbors and co-workers. We can address issues of religious liberty as they arise with firm resolve and Christ-like humility. But our task as Christians is not ultimately to assert our rights in any given culture. Our task is to uphold the truth of Scripture and proclaim that the truth is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And no election, no referendum, and no court ruling will ever change that. Lastly, we need to be reminded that Jesus is not surprised about the Supreme Court's decision. He's not surprised by the demise of our nation. And he is still the eternal sovereign Lord, God, and King. We cannot smirk at the misery of our immoral culture, but we must weep over the sins that surround us. The salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. When it can, it saves and it seasons. So we must pray for repentance, revival, reformation. But where it can't save and season, it weeps. We must trust what we say we believe. Namely, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that while everything surrounding us might give way, Jesus Christ is our solid rock, our only hope, and our sovereign king. Brothers and sisters, so-called same-sex marriage is headed for our community in very short order. And it's time for forgiven sinners like us to do what the people of God have always done. It's time for us to point beyond our family values, beyond our culture wars, to the cross of Christ as we say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in the midst of what seems like very bad news, that's really the only true good news, that Jesus is the Christ. And He redeems Sinners from the world of all kinds, of all shapes, of all persuasions. Because at the end of the day, if you are not in Christ, you are in the same position, facing the same eternity. And so the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world is really and truly the only good news. And in it, we, as God's people, have every reason to not despair, but to only rejoice in what God has accomplished in His Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word, and that You have so clearly defined for us what is right and true that we need not face situations like we are facing now as a people in this place, in this time, and question whether or not it is right. We know very clearly from the Scriptures that it is not. 
we know very clearly from the scriptures that you have designed and instituted marriage to be fulfilled in order to bring about the purposes which you have intended. And so we pray, God, that as a people, that we would honor the institution of marriage higher than we ever have. Lord, forgive us where we have fallen short in our own marriages. Forgive us, God, for thinking frivolously and flippantly about things like divorce and adultery. Forgive us, God, for unjust hatred that has been in our hearts toward those who are in the world and who are in the realm of sin in their life. Lord, we too were just like them. Our sins may be very different, and yet the condition is the same. In seeking to fulfill the desires of the flesh, we've sought our own way. We've sought to make ourselves God and King. And we've sought to fulfill our vile passions by the things of this world. And as we seek and do not find, we have turned to the most egregious things that we can think of, assuming that they would be the end in which our passions would be fulfilled. And yet we know what is right and true from your word. And we recognize, O God, that it is in nothing that we can search out and find in this world, but it is only in Jesus Christ who redeems and makes us to be whole people, who redeems us from sin and the penalty of death. And so I pray, God, that you help us to be a people who stands firmly on biblical conviction, proclaiming what is right and true according to your word, while simultaneously expressing great compassion and love for those who are entrapped in sin. May we be bold to not fear man, but to call the world to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, who is our only hope. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truth that pervades every aspect of human life and experience. And thank you for the gospel that offers hope where all seems dark and lost. We love you, we thank you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.